Well, good morning, everybody. You can uh, find your seats and continue the fellowship after we get done here. Glad you are with us this morning. We are in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians called The Cross. And uh, we've been through this the last several weeks. It'll pretty much be all winter that we'll be going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, You know, and, and kind of the theme verse that we've used is for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is God's power to us who are being saved. And that's what we've been looking at, this message of the cross. If you remember, the cross in the, Old, or in the New Testament and years ago was an executionary tool. It would be like saying our series is called the electric chair. And you'd be like, what in the world kind of church is this, right? But that's literally what the cross was. It was a tool by which final judgment was paid. Once you went to a cross, the Romans made sure you were dead. And it was serious to go to the cross. It meant you refused to submit or you, can, you uh, committed some heinous crime. And yet Jesus went to the cross for us and he tells us to pick up our cross daily to follow him. And we've been looking at what that means and how that turns the world upside down. And really, if you think about it, we need a more focused, practical, straightforward message today than ever, especially people who call themselves Christians and those of us who are in the church. The message of the cross, it's foolishness, but it's God's strength to those of us who say that we believe in this Jesus, in this God. Over the last several weeks, we looked at the first part of 1 Corinthians and the first part of chapter 1 where he talks about our identity, that once we believe in who Jesus is and we accept what he did for us and what we deserve, that we embrace the fact that, wow, I'm the one that was in rebellion and Jesus actually made the greatest judgment exchange in the history of man and took my place that I deserve. And we looked at the identity that we can find in that and Paul lists that out in the first part of the book. And the reason he does that is because he's getting ready to say some really hard things. After that, Paul lists out foolishness and understanding. And he talks about the fact that that you need to know what is foolish and you need to understand what is wise. And that's the third part that we looked at, which is wisdom in chapter three or in chapter two. And then last week, we looked at this idea of spiritual people. We looked at these three circles, the first circle being this idea of Christ is outside the life. You or a person is on the throne of their life. They're making decisions based on what they want, not on what God says or what God wants for their life. They don't even give themselves to the things of God or commit to the things of God. Maybe they believe in a God, but not in Jesus, and definitely they have not invited Jesus to take over and control their life. The middle person is someone who surrendered to Christ. They've put Christ on the throne, and they're progressively saying, Jesus, I want you to have more of my heart, more of my time, more of my treasure, more of the stories that I tell. I, I want you to be Lord and in control of my life, and you to order the things of my life as you see fit for something greater than I could ever want. And then the last person Paul talked about is he said, I wanted to speak to you as spiritual people, but instead you were carnal, you were fleshly. You looked at how to take care of yourself instead of looking how to give yourself to God and to his purposes. And that person is someone who's invited Jesus into their life, but they've taken back control. Their life's a mess, and Jesus is saying, please, let me have control. Will you surrender? And we talked about, at Foot of the Cross Church, we talk about going, knowing, showing, and growing in Christ. This week, I want us to look at being found faithful. Found faithful. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, it says this, a person should consider us in this way. Let me ask you, how do you want to be considered? I can actually find that out on most of you. All I need is your name. And then I start going to Facebook, Instagram, right, Twitter, TikTok, and I start searching how you want people to consider your life because those are the things you post. You want people to consider this is the way I do life. These are the things I enjoy. These are the things that are a struggle. These are my friends. These are my family. This is what I invest my time in and my treasure in. You can find that out. As a matter of fact, employers do it all the time. You can fill out a job resume, and employers are really good to go, yep, everybody fills out the resume the same, let's go find them on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, 
Instagram, Snapchat, and find out who they really are. And see, Paul says, after he's laid all this out in the first few chapters, he said that a person should consider his or her way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father or be a part of the heavenly family to have a home in heaven except through me. And so let me ask you, have you considered your way? Will you be found faithful when you die? Because he goes on and says this, as servants of Christ and managers of God's mysteries, in this regard, it is expected of managers that each one of them be found faithful. How do you want to be found when you die? Have you ever thought about that? Have you, been ever, have you ever been doing something really stupid and thought, I hope I don't die right now? Because this is going to be on the news. This is going to be on the Bloomingtonian on Facebook, and everybody's going to be like, man reaches for limb and falls off ladder and dies. Like, and people are going to be like, why was Matt on a, why was, oh yeah, it's Matt. He, yeah, he does stupid, like, you, or how about, have you ever thought about the fact that like you slip in the shower and almost fall down, and you think, oh my gosh, I'm glad that didn't happen because I would hate to be found dead in the shower by my family naked, right? <laughs> like how awful that would be to be found like that. I mean, yet when it comes to spiritual things, Paul is saying, look, I want you, I want to be found faithful. That whenever my time comes, whenever Jesus looks down on my life, that he can find me as a person full of faith, that I'm trusting in him. And sometimes full of faith means just admitting you're an idiot, you're wrong, and and you need help. And you believe that through Christ's forgiveness and his grace and the power of his Holy Spirit, He can change you. It's not that you have all your life together and everything's working perfect. It's that you actually believe that there is a God who is faithful, which is what we sang about a few songs ago. Do you believe that? See, most of us don't. And the reason I know is because we don't place our faith in him. We place our faith in everything else. And Paul is saying, if you understand, if you've given your life fully to Christ, then you understand that you are simply a manager. You're not the owner. There is nothing more offensive in American culture than that statement. That you are not the owner, you're only a manager. This is my property. I own this. I built this. I did this. Really, who gave you breath? Who let your heart beat another day? Who, who supported you? Who paid you? Who gave you a job? We are so interconnected just in terms of the physical, much less the spiritual, and yet we can stand and think, no, 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 I'm an owner. Listen, if you think you own your property, just don't pay your taxes and see if the government decides you still own your property. They will tell you you no longer own your property. It's called a sheriff's sale. They don't even have to inform you they're selling your property. They can just sell it and then come in and move you out. Because you didn't pay your taxes. We, we literally under, we, have, we so buy into the lie that we are in control. That, that faith is some weird thing that those spiritual people have. I heard someone quote Stephen Hawking this week, famous atheist scientist. And he said, you know, religion and religious people, you know, they, they basically have a fairy tale that helps them not be afraid of the dark. And a theologian responded back and said, well, actually, it's more of a fairy tale that teaches us to embrace the light, to not be afraid of the light, to not be afraid of God's holiness, his goodness. And so Paul says, look, we need to consider, after you've thought about your identity, after you've thought through what's foolish and what's understanding, after you've thought through what is the wise thing to do, and after you've considered, am I a spiritual person or am I just living like the world? Does my life really look different? Does it look like when I read scripture, these people that stood up for what God wanted, they lived simple lives and were faithful? Or does my life look more like the world? If it does, then Paul says, you need to consider your way because you may not be found faithful, full of faith. And Paul does not want that for this church. He doesn't want it for this church, and he doesn't want it for other churches. 
And so he writes to the Corinthians, he says, look, I'm going to list some things moving forward that are going to show things that aren't faithfulness, their selfishness, their sinfulness. And he says, I want you to be found faithful. See, Christ was found faithful. He went all the way to the cross and he put his full faith in one thing, the ability of the heavenly father and the heavenly faithfulness of God's word throughout history to bring him back to life. And it happened. And he walked the earth for many days after he came back to life to prove that he was God and to build into the life of his disciples. He wanted to prove who he was. He was full of faith. That's why he could live the life he lived, which was a simple life that barely left kind of the state of New Jersey. He never went outside of that his entire life. He didn't even start his ministry until he was 30 years old. You think you got to find a job at 22, 23 and figure out what your life's about? Jesus didn't even let us know until he was 30. And then he only spent three and a third years doing it. How'd that be? Hey, here's your job at 30. You're dead at 33 and a third. What a great life you lived. Our world would reject that. Oh, how tra- how. And yet Jesus knew his mission. He knew that it wasn't about the things of this world. It was about being faithful to manage the body he had been given, to place it on a cross, to die on our behalf so that we could have a way to know him and be with him. Peter wanted to be found faithful. He said, I'll die for you, God. I'll pick up my sword and I'll fight to the death. And Jesus' response to him was, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the mind of God when you want to be in control and you say who lives and you say who dies. You have to submit to me, Peter. And he tells Peter, you're going to, later he tells him, you're going to be led places you don't want to go. And people are going to control you in ways you don't want to be controlled. And I'm telling you, God will be faithful to resurrect you and give you a new life. See, we don't see ourselves as managers in the West. We just don't. We see ourselves as in control and owners, that we can fix everything. Can I just tell you, we live in a world right now that is so incredibly divisive. I'm sick of it. I don't know about you. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that God does bring division. Jesus came. He said, I came to bring division. But we don't rightly divide. We wrongly divide. We jump on bandwagons. We make quick decisions. We're not long-suffering. We're not patient. We don't pray. We don't fast. We don't think. We just jump on, well, that seems right, so I'll go with that for a while. Oh, now I'll jump on this, and that seems right, and I'll go. We don't look, which is what Paul's going to say, to what God says is a faithful person and a person full of faith in Scripture. Because the outcome of faithful people in Scripture, it didn't normally end well for them. The majority of people in Scripture, it didn't end well. It's not a way you would want to die. I mean, even Moses himself climbed a mountain and God buried him. Well, uh, yeah, like there's the promised land. I want to go in. God's like, nope, you're not going in. I'll bring you in later when I resurrect you and give you a new body. Not right now. He climbs a mountain. The people watch him climb a mountain and God just buries him. And then Joshua's like, okay, I'm in charge and leads him into the promised land. Is that the way you want to go? And the reason everybody knew Moses was climbing the mountain and he's not coming back is because he struck a rock when God told him to speak to it. But that seems a little harsh to me. I've done a lot worse things than striking a rock when I was supposed to speak to it than Moses did. And yet God said, no, because of this sin, there has to be a consequence. I'm going to take care of you. He took care of him all those years. I'm going to bring you into the promised land one day. I'll take you up on the mountain so you can actually see the promised land. But your life will be over and someone else is going to take the realm and walk the people in. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus walked up. The Mount of Golgotha, he placed himself on the cross. He came back to life. Then he ascended into heaven and he gave the reins to his followers and said, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to do what God has asked you to do, which is to bring people into my kingdom before I come back. It's no different than the Old Testament story. It's the same story over and over again of people being faithful. Look at what 1 Corinthians goes on to say in verse 3. It is of little importance to me that I should be evaluated by you or any human court. (laughs) Have you ever been pulled over by a police officer? Try this on him. 
It's of no value to me that you evaluate me today on your little radar screen, right? You know what happens when the police officer pulls you over and the nerves that hit you and the what did I do? Or maybe you're a more prideful person to say, why is he pulling me over? He should be getting some murder or something. There's stuff that rages in us, right? When authority shows up and Paul says, look, it's of little importance to me that I should be evaluated by you or any human court. Can I just tell you, this is the opposite of everything we build our culture on. You try to get likes. You want the court of human appeal to say you're worthy, you're liked, your life is worthwhile, I like what you post, I like it. We are so consumed with ourselves. And Paul says, it is a, I don't care what the world thinks. Now that, Paul didn't run around trying to make enemies of the world and trying to be a jerk. That's not what Paul did. But Paul was like, when I look to evaluate whether I'm faithful, when I look to evaluate my life, I don't go to you, I don't go to Facebook, I don't go to my job, I don't go to my marriage, I, I go to the word of God, I go to faith. And that's exactly what he goes on to say. He says, in fact, I don't even evaluate myself, he says. Well, but he just said to consider our way. So is Paul like confused here? Does he got COVID fog? Like what's going on with Paul that he says consider his way and then he says, I don't even evaluate myself. Well, what he's saying, look what he says. He says, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. See, Paul says, it's not that I don't evaluate myself. It's that it's not me saying, hey, me, how do you look today? Well, you look good today, me. Paul's saying, I'm going to evaluate myself by the word of God. It's not me who evaluates. It's God's word. And can I tell you, when you evaluate yourself by God's word, it's brutal. And it's also beautiful. Both. When you evaluate yourself by the person of Christ and what he did and what his word says about his love for people that have surrendered their lives to him, there could be nothing that is more fulfilling and you will stop chasing other things and you will sit in that and be amazed and it will change you forever. And there's nothing worse than rejecting that and trying to find fulfillment in all the other things that you're chasing, trying to be found faithful in all other ways except the way that God says to be found faithful. He says, I'm not conscious of anything. In other words, I've thought through my life. I've considered my life. I've looked to the word of God. And you know what? I've looked and it's like, I don't really find anything major in my life. But then he says, but I'm not even justified by that because there are things in my conscience God hasn't even revealed to me yet how stupid I am. Because he's so nice, he doesn't dump all of your mess on you at once. He peels it off a layer at the time so he can walk you through it. Like a child being educated. You don't throw calculus at a kindergartner. They will hate school and they'll quit. You've got to teach them numbers. How to count. Then addition, subtraction, all the way up. There's a process. God is the same. The way we develop spiritually is the way we develop physically. They're mirroring of one another. Can I just tell you, that's not something popular today either. We don't like the idea that I'm a 35-year-old baby spiritually if I've just come to know Jesus. I want to grow up now. I got to do big things now. I got to go now. It doesn't mean we can't step out and do things, but it does mean that we at least recognize, like Paul says, and say, man, I, I recognize, I consider this. He says, the one who evaluates me, look at this, it's not all these other people, it's not a human court, it's not even myself. The one who truly evaluates me, look at this, is the Lord. He's the one who evaluates me, and if I am in him, and I have trusted in him, then he evaluates me, and he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I'm going to evaluate you so that we can move forward together, and you can become more like me, and show people more of who I am in the world, and be about my plan and my kingdom. That's what I'm going to do, because we're a heavenly family. It's a beautiful picture, and Paul's trying to get this First Corinthian church to understand this, because they've forgotten it. They think being found faithful in their day was being wise and you know, having all this head knowledge and following this guy and then following that guy. And as long as you're happy and wealthy and all these things, therefore, he says, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then 
praise will come to each one for God. I love that. I love that Paul says, look, God is going to come. He's going to judge. He's going to judge the intentions. But his intention in judging is to give praise for what he's done in your life and how you've responded. It's not to squash you. It's not to say, you sinner, you awful. It's to, it's to get rid of all the sin so we can say, oh, look, there's a nugget. I, I wash away all the rocks, and there's a gold nugget. That, that, we can keep that. The rest of it washes away. Look at the gold nugget. Let's praise God for that. That's what God is doing in our life. The death of ourselves, to wash away the mess, and to find the, the beauty that he's created in us, and to say, that's what I want to do in your life. Let me ask you, if God was to bring to light the hidden things in your heart and you were to die and God brings those things to light like he will, how do you feel about that? First off, I hope you feel like you know that God can forgive those things because that's what Paul says. And that he loves you and he cares about you and he wants to change your heart. And secondly, I hope that you'll be someone who says, God, I want you to change me. I want to be found full of faith in you and what you can do because I want to hear your praise instead of the praise of social media, the praise of my employer, the praise, the praise, the praise of everybody else. I want to hear your praise above the noise. And can I just tell you right now, we judge things all the time prematurely. Think about the mess we're in right now as a country. Inflation, COVID, we have done nothing but over the last two years and before that, judge things prematurely. People have been silenced. They've not been allowed to speak. Even doctors and professionals have been silenced. And then later it comes out to show, oh, actually they, oh, they were right, or at least a little bit right. Because the intentions of the heart are what matter, not what we do. And the intention of people's heart was control and we can fix this. And any, whenever anybody goes to control and we can fix it, I always go, oh boy, here comes God. <laughs> it may not come right now, but it's going to come eventually because it says he's going to come back and judge. And man, he's going to show, you can't control this, you can't fix it, and I'm in charge. And, and he keeps doing that. You want to know why? Because he doesn't want us to perish eternally. And the world around us keeps trying to get us to go to the next pleasure, the next thing. You know, it's amazing to me, there's many words that the Bible uses for the word judge in the New Testament. Most of us, when we think of judge, we only use a modern definition of judge and then we apply it to Scripture. When Paul says to judge here that, that the Lord comes, he's don't judge anything prematurely. The word he uses there is actually condemnation. Don't condemn anything prematurely. Think about if we had that attitude. Don't condemn anything prematurely. Think about it. Evaluate it. See if it's found faithful in God's word. See how it fits. Don't just run to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Like, pause and wait. Do you realize that God waited between the book of Malachi and the coming of Jesus 400 years? 400 years of silence, not, not any scripture written, waiting for his timing. How many generations? I mean, we, are, we just want God to do what we want him to do right now, and you're going to do it, versus saying, hey, you're faithful, I can trust you, and I can live my life and do what you've called me to do, and know it fits into your whole scheme, and I don't have to panic. I don't have to worry. I can just be faithful as a mom, as a dad, as a student, as a son, as a daughter, as a friend, in a small town. It doesn't matter. That's the message that people need to hear of Christianity today. We are killing people and stressing them out and we're giving them all these false intentions of the heart instead of saying, whoa, hold on. Trust him. Tell others to trust him. And can I tell you, that is such an offensive message because we all want to be liked. We all want this judgment that when people judge us, they find us how we want to be found. This word for judgment Jesus uses in Matthew 7, 1, it says this. Do not judge. Do not condemn. That's the intention of the word there. See, we look at judge and we think, well, you can't make any judgments. I'll show you in a minute. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Paul says to consider your way. That's judging, considering your way. He says that God is going to judge us. He says all of those things. So Jesus says, don't judge so that you won't be judged or contemned, condemned. For with the, the, ha, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged. 
If you condemn someone and said they're unsavable, they're condemned, God can't redeem them, be careful. Be careful. Because God can redeem anyone. He can take any condemnation and put it on himself because that's what you're trusting in. So you better be careful. And then he says, it will be measured to you with the measure you use. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log or the plank in your own eye? There used to be a band back in the day called Plank Eye. They were like a heavy metal like band. I have a couple of their albums, like back in the 90s. Like it's like thrash metal. But their, their name was Plank Eye. I just love their name. When I originally bought their album, I'd never listened to their music. And it's like, what a great name, Plank Eye, right? However, he says, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your own eye. That just makes me laugh. The people in Jesus' day would have laughed at this. You literally have a two by four sticking out of your eye and you're coming up to your friend being like, here, let me help you with that. You're like, no, right? I don't want you near me. You're going to smack me with that thing. He goes on and he says, hypocrite. Look at this. First, take the log out of your eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say, just stay blind and help your brother stay blind and just be blind. But that's how we take this verse. The Bible says not to judge. No, the Bible says put the judgment on you and then explain to someone else how you've placed judgment on yourself, how Christ has taken your judgment, and then you look at them and say, I'm telling you, Jesus can take the speck out of your eye. He removed the plank out of mine. And if he can take the plank out of mine, you're nowhere near as bad as I am, I'm sure. That is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying before you evaluate, don't walk up and say, oh, you terrible person, say, I've dealt with this before. You don't want to go there. It's wrong. Don't do this. It's not look at him and go, oh, he's got a speck. Oh, that's too bad. I'm so glad Jesus took the plank out of my eye. I hope he doesn't get an infection and die. Have a nice day. But that's how we interpret this idea in our modern culture of you can't judge anybody. No. The Bible is full of judgment. It tells you right, wrong, off limits, on limits. It doesn't hide it. And yet we've interpreted this today as this idea that you just do whatever and in the end God will judge it all. He says, no, remove your own plank. And if you've done that and you've placed your, you've let God take the plank out of your eye and heal you, you can go to someone else and say, I'm telling you, I can help. Because of what Christ has done in my life and the power of the Holy Spirit, I can help lead you to the one who is the great physician. And let me tell you, if they say no, then they're judged. And that little speck is going to get infected and it's going to grow. And they're going to become more and more blind until they finally say help. That's judgment. He goes on and says this. In Deuteronomy, when Moses is writing the law, and he's talking about how to be found faithful and how to judge, write judgments. He said to the people, so I took the leaders of your tribes, wise and respected men, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and I set them over you as leaders and officials for the thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and officers for your tribes. He, Moses appointed leaders that the people would say, that is a leader, they can hold me accountable, they're allowed to judge, they're in charge. I come under their authority. We do this in the New Testament church as well, that there are pastors, elders, shepherds, leaders, deacons, the whole nine We come under authority. God has established authority for a reason. Here, before he gives a single law, he tells them, I'm going to give you laws, but if you don't embrace the consequences and the authority in your life to help you understand them and walk in them, then it's not going to matter. And in our culture today, we hate authority. We hate to be under anyone. As a matter of fact, we see it as a failure if people are under authority, instead of as a badge of honor. And can I just tell you, the cross will put you under authority because Jesus, when he went to the cross, was under the Roman authority, he was under the Jewish authorities, and he was under the authority of his father to die in our place. And that is an offensive, foolish message to our world. He goes on and he says, I commanded your judges at that time Hear the cases between your brothers and judge rightly between a man and his brother or a foreign resident. That means they had to know what? The law. They had to know the word. 
They had to know Scripture to do this rightly. And then it says, do not show partiality when deciding a case. Listen to small cases and great alike. Do not be intimidated by anyone. That's what Paul says. I'm not going to make judgments based on likes and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to make it based on God's word, for judgment belongs to God. Moses says, bring me any case too difficult for you, and I will hear it, take it before the Lord, and make a decision. This is powerful. Do you realize that in this culture at this time, it was so strange not to show partiality in judgment? It's still strange today, right? I am always amazed at how many parents will let their kids slide on things, but the second their kid is offended by another kid who did the same thing they let their kids slide on, they come unglued and want the school to get involved. Where is put? God puts, he says, I judge my household first so that then the rest of the world sees they don't get off. They're not going to get off on the judgment. That's why God's people were in such a mess all the way through the Old Testament. He kept saying, I love you. I'm going to discipline you as a heavenly father. Here it is again. And it's going to declare to the rest of the world, you don't get a pass. Because I don't even let these people have a pass. And all of us want partiality. We want to network and have the right relationships. So that when we mess up, we don't have to own it. We can kind of skirt around it. We can have the right officials let us by. I was driving the other day and there was a police officer who had somebody pulled over. And I drove by and I go, hey, I know that kid. And I thought, I wonder if I got pulled over. And he pulled up and I said, hey, and said his name. If he'd be like, hey, it's good to see you. Maybe he'd give me a warning, right? That poor sap, if he doesn't know him, he's getting a ticket, right? I thought that. That's how wicked my mind is. That's how we think. It's how we've been trained to think. And God in this culture, where everything was based on bribes and buy-offs and what's in it for me, he says, no, you will not be that kind of people. Do not allow it. You place the authority to judge on me and you stand for it. And that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. Well, this is what God says. He says that this is off limits and that you deserve to die because of this. Now, what's your response? And if the response is, well, then kill me, I don't care. Yeah, that's not a good response. But if your response is, oh, my goodness, I'm sorry, I just, God, forgive me. And then he says, okay, then I'll forgive. There may still be earthly consequences from the sin, but I won't hold it against you because I'll put it on myself. That's why the sacrificial system in the Old Testament killed so many animals. It was to declare to them, there's no way you can keep up. You've got to throw yourself on me. And yet we've resurrected a new sacrificial system in our society that's unfortunate. And Zechariah 8.16 says, these things you must do, must do. Zechariah is a prophet. He's writing to the people of God who are totally doing crazy, wicked things at this point. And he says, speak to one another. That means, again, you don't just say, oh, they got a speck. Oh, look at that plank. Well, I hope it doesn't kill them and go on with your life. You have to speak. You have to look at someone and say, I love you. Let's have a conversation about this. Maybe I'm misinterpreting this, but this is what I see and I'm concerned. And I just, what's going on in your life? I just, I'll be patient and long-suffering with you. You don't have to change it right now or I don't like you. Like, I just, I just can't not talk about what God's word says and I'm concerned for your life. He says, make true and sound decisions within your gates. We can't make the world make true and sound decisions, but we can do it within our gates, our realm of authority. Your heart, your relationships, your friendships, this local church, your family. We can do it within our gates, but if we won't do it within our gates, we keep demanding from the world to live a certain way. I am so sick of Christians talking about the need to get back to biblical marriage when we won't hold people accountable in the church to biblical marriage. We'll let people divorce seven, eight times and not say boo to them as long as they give financially and don't cause a ruckus in the church. We're not even concerned about their salvation. We don't even offer them to find grace and forgiveness because obviously they're trusting in something else to fill them instead of Christ. I want them to know that they can be forgiven from all seven failed marriages. But they've got to surrender and quit chasing the woman or the man to fill them because it won't work. And so yeah, the world feels judged wrongly because we're pointing out a speck while we're walking around with planks. And we've got to stop. 
It may just start with our small church or a few small churches here and there. Remember, Jesus turned the world upside down with 11 guys. 11. Flipped it over. The reason you're here is because of 11 faithful dudes, guys that said, we will be found faithful. He goes on and he says, do not plot evil in your hearts against your neighbor. Do not love perjury. That means let your yes be yes, no be no. Don't be like, well, kind of, sort. no, don't do it. For I hate all of this. This is the Lord's declaration. Guys, we are doing what God hates so often. And God says, I love you. Don't do what I hate. Do what I love and see if you don't find love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In Leviticus 19.1, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, Be holy, because I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Jesus repeats this in the New Testament. He repeats this very phrase. How are we going to be holy? You must not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Look at what he says. He says, don't be partial to the poor. See, we live in a culture, especially in Bloomington, where we will be partial to the poor. We won't judge them. We won't even rightly talk to them about their need to surrender their life and whatever they're going through to Christ. We will show partiality to them because, oh, well, they're lesser, they're poor, they're this, they're that, versus calling them to a standard of holiness to the holy God and to Jesus himself and to say that they can find forgiveness. And the same with the rich. Often we will give preference to those whose lives look like they've got it under control. They, they slap a big C Christian on their, a Bible verse on their, their website and, oh, they must love God. They, they must be a Christian. They're a good person. God says, don't, this is Old Testament, thousands of years ago. God's like, don't do that. In the New Testament, Paul says to poor people, if you're in the church and you're unwilling to work, he tells the leaders, don't feed them. Did you know that was in your Bible? The New Testament, not the Old? He's not talking about poor people who don't know him. Remember, judgment starts in the house of God. But he's saying to those of us who are in the church, be careful that you don't victimize, make excuses, and meme. Stop. It's all about his glory, his holiness, and who he is. And all of us have got to point one another, whatever circumstances of life we have, whatever education, whatever wealth, whatever value, we've got to point to that. And God has said that for all of human history. Look at what Jesus says in John 7, 24. He says this, stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgments. Jesus is saying to judge there. He says, but quit doing it based on outward appearance. Quit doing it and saying, well, their life looks like they've got it together. Well, do they? Or are they using all that as a cover-up for the stink that's underneath? Or, man, that person's life looks completely like a shame, like, oh, my goodness, a disaster. Then you talk to them and find out they are just struggling and have this deep love for Jesus. Stop our entire world. We're wearing masks right now to give an outward appearance that we're actually stopping something we're not stopping. We are. The reason we're having you wear masks in here is because they've asked us to. And you have pants on. So wear a mask. It's fine. I'm not against it. Like, I wear pants. I don't like to wear pants. We have people in this church who wear shorts to church. Weirdos. I mean, what are you doing? It's winter outside. So if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. It's great. In here we do it because it allows us to meet here and free up more of our funds because our rent is so um, avail cheap here and it allows us to serve the people that come here. It's a small price to pay for us to be able to have this place to meet. So we do it. But if you tell me like this is going to solve it, it's not going to solve it. And if you go to a restaurant and take it off and eat, and then put it on when you get up and walk around. Oh my gosh. Like, really? Again, I'm, 
I'm not going to fight it. It's just we've got to stop looking at outward appearance and saying, oh, they're more righteous because they, oh, they do. Stop. Why are we placing all these judgments on people when God says judge according to the gospel, period, and then build off of that? Do what's right, he says. He goes on to say this in 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself. Paul says, look, I've talked about this. I've talked about your need to be found faithful and be considered and to judge. Look, I've applied all this to myself. I've looked at the plank, and Apollos has too. And the reason we've done it is for your benefit. In other words, the reason we allow ourselves to continue to come under righteous judgment is because we're not going to be judged. Jesus is going to forgive us by his grace. Once you get the free gift of salvation, it's not like a string on a carrot that Jesus keeps pulling away from you, right? Like, oh, too bad. Oh, you sinned. That's not what he does. He says, it's free. It's yours. But we have to keep participating in sanctification. He says, so that you may learn from us, look at this, the saying. Look at the saying. Nothing beyond what is written. Paul would tell his churches, you judge us, nothing beyond what is written. Everything in the New Testament was written based on the Old Testament. Did you know that? All the people sharing the gospel in the New Testament, you know how they shared the gospel? Because they didn't have the gospels, nor did they have Paul's letters. You know what they used to share the gospel? The Old Testament. Because that's what they had. God had not compiled the other part of the word yet. It was being compiled. And so Paul says, nothing beyond what has been written by God. Then he says, the purpose is that none of you will be inflated with pride in favor of one person over another. He says, if you know the word, if you understand what Jesus did for you, if you understand plank eye spec, all the stuff, if you understand everything I've written, I am telling you, you won't have that terrible pride that walks around pointing fingers, but you'll have an incredible humility that in in the glory of God says, that's not glorious to God, don't do that. Not I'm better than you, but God's better than all of us. He's holy. Let's get on his side. That's what Paul is writing. When the Reformation happened, these are the five solas that kind of the Reformation were girded under. It was sola scriptura, that means scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christo, Christ alone. Sola de gloria, the glory of God alone. These are the things that defined the Reformation when the church was literally selling salvation to buy family members out of purgatory that the church made up. You could go die in a holy war, and if you sent your son to go die, your whole family would be saved. That's how they recruited soldiers as the church to fight for the promised land. That's corrupt, folks. That's wicked. And so the reformers said, we've got to deal with what do we really believe? What's the foundation? Scripture alone, nothing beyond what is written. And then we will have faith alone in that scripture. Then we will know that we have grace because of the scripture. Then we know it's all about Jesus because the scripture was written by Jesus, who is the word, so it's all about him. And then all of it we see is the glory of God because the scriptures tell us the end of revelation and what the glory of God looks like. Nothing but Scripture. Let me ask you, do you even know your Bible? Many of you are studying to get a degree so that you can be proven that you know something. They're going to test you, and you refuse to join a church or to be a part of a group that will test you on your faith. You refuse. Well, it's just me and Jesus. But you'll put yourself under every earthly authority since you were in kindergarten and take every test because there's a benefit for you, which means you don't see the benefit of coming under one another to grow in Christ. I've told this story many times, but one of the requirements for my kids, when I sent them off to college after 26 years of campus ministry, I looked at my kids and I said, there are three requirements. If you want us to keep paying your bills, one of our kids, we had to stop paying their bills. Three requirements. You have to be a member of a local church wherever you go to college. If you stay in Bloomington, it doesn't even have to be my church. Not mine, our church. It doesn't even have to be your dad's church is what I meant to say. Like, you know, like I get it. I need your dad. You might want to go someplace else. It's fine. Number two, you need to be a member of a small group under the authority of a group leader. And three, you need to have a spiritual mentor in your life that you're coming under to speak truth. If those three things are not true in your life, we're done paying bills. We're out. You can get C's. That's fine. I mean, I hope you don't get C's. I hope you do better, but maybe C's are the best you can do. You can flunk out. Maybe that's the best you can do. 
But at the end of the day, if you want me to continue to help you, I need to see faithfulness to God and his word and his people. Paul goes on to write this. He says, for who makes you so superior? He said, you get so inflated with pride because you think, well, I'm righteous, I'm right. Who made you so, what do you have that you didn't receive? You have life because two people said, here's our DNA and created you. Literally. But you didn't think that up. He goes on, he says, in fact, you did receive it. Why do you boast if you hadn't, as if you hadn't received it? Why do you say you made it? You did it. Look at what I did. Say, man, God enabled me by the, his grace. I followed his word, and this is how it turned out. I want to keep following his word because this is what he does. He goes on, he says, you're already full. You are already rich. In other words, he's saying, you don't need God. You don't need to submit because you think you're already full. You're already rich. You think you've already begun to reign as kings without us. Although I wish you did reign so we could reign with you. In other words, he's like, I wish we were all reigning and the new earth has come and Jesus has his throne established and we are co-heirs with him. I wish that was the case, but that's not where we're at right now and you guys are acting as if it's heaven on earth. Don't do it. And he's also flipping it around because he's telling them, you actually already are full of God. You actually already are rich in Christ. You actually have already begun to reign, but not the way you're doing it. How do I know he's saying that? Look at the next passage. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place. How many of you ever had to run a race that you didn't want to run and be in last place every time. How'd that feel? Before you started, you knew, I'm going to be last. I mean, I might be competing with that other last person, and it's like the two of us down to the finish, but that's just, that's even more embarrassing when you lose, right? You know what I'm saying? Paul says, we as the apostles understand that to be last is to be first. We've given up everything. We've surrendered. We're not looking for fullness because we know we have it. We're not looking for riches because we know we have it. We're not looking to be in charge of you all because we already know that Christ is in charge of everything. And he says, he's made us last like men condemned to die, men who have picked up their cross. We have become a spectacle, look at this, to the world and to angels and to men. Listen, it is a spectacle to watch a race, right? And then be that last person. And everybody then starts cheering for you. And you're like, that's not helpful. Just look away, right? Like, like, just look away and let me finish my race. You do not need to cheer me on. It's good. God's like, no. Paul's like, no, no, no. We're actually those last runners, to make sure that we can push all of you forward to heaven, to make sure you all finish well, we're taking the brunt. Because we recognize that when we cross, there's a heavenly angels and all that are cheering. I don't need the applause of the world when I have the applause of the Savior and the angels in heaven, Paul says. He says, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. Again, it's kind of sarcastic, right? We're fools, but you guys consider yourself, we consider ourselves foolish, and then they go out and talk to people, and they say, oh, but we're wise. Paul's like, are you serious? I'm smarter than all of you. He goes on, he says, we are weak. Oh, but you're strong. You are distinguished. Oh, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry, Paul says. Like, I'm writing this to you right now, and I'm hungry. I haven't eaten. I'm thirsty. I am poorly clothed. I am been roughly treated. I'm actually homeless right now. And we're laboring, working with our own hands, not receiving any payment from the church. And can I just tell you, Paul and the apostles were responsible to collect all the offerings from all the churches and take them to Jerusalem at this time, which he did multiple times. You can read about it in Acts. And he didn't get money from the treasury. He served and took the full offering to where it was supposed to go. When he could have just taken a little bit here and there and handed it out to his buddies. He was very careful to act responsibly with what God had given. Now, there were times when he did take money from the church. But he didn't steal from the missions offering to take money from the church. He goes up and he says, 
We are reviled, yet we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. See, Paul says, you look wise in Christ. You think you're strong. You think you're distinguished. But I'm telling you, God judges the motives of your heart and you better be careful. He says, even now, we are like the world's garbage. Paul says, even now, we're like the world's garbage. Like the dirt everyone scrapes off their sandals. Like when you step in manure And you step in that pile of your dog poo in the backyard and you bring it inside the house and then you have to go back out and scrape it off. That's what Paul says he considers his life and considers it worth it. He says, I'm not writing this. Now here's key. I'm not writing this to shame you. Look at what he says. But to warn you as my dear children. Paul considers himself a spiritual father to this church. He takes ownership of them as a part of the family. And he says, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to say you shouldn't. I'm trying to warn you that it's so easy to chase being distinguished and wisdom and all these things instead of just surrendering to Christ and running the race he's called you to run. And you may be in last place and everybody gets in front of you and you can cheer them on as they finish because you were a part of making it happen. He goes on and he says, for you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ but you can't have many fathers. It goes back to that authority and that conversation with my kids. Will you place yourself under a spiritual pastor, a spiritual family? Will you place yourself under leaders that want to see you grow? Will you do that? Because Paul says, that's what I'm looking for. And he says, so many of us, especially today, we have 10,000 instructors in Christ. You will run to C.S. Lewis. You will run to Desiring God and John Piper. You'll run to Rick Warren. You'll run to Stephen Furtick. You'll run to every teacher out there. But you won't place yourself under just a family, a spiritual father that will pray for you, that will help you, that will walk with you, Paul says. And remember, he started the book out saying, you have all these divisions because you keep chasing all these teachers instead of just living a faithful life, mirroring what a family should look like. He goes on and he says, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, Paul says, to imitate me. Boy, that is a big statement. He just got done saying they are the garbage on the sandals of the feet. He just got done saying all the things they went through. And he says, yeah, all that stuff, imitate that. Fake it till it's true. Right? In our culture, we say, well, if you don't feel like it, I'm just going to pray you feel like it. No, fake it till it's true. Discipline your life. Now, you should ask the question, why am I faking it? Right? Right? And hopefully you start liking it, but typically you don't like things till you practice them and your body gets used to them. Paul lays this out, and he, look at this. He says, this is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful son in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul says, I don't have ways for the Galatian church and then ways for the Corinthian church, and then ways for the Athenian church, and then ways for the... See, we do that in our culture. Well, Paul meant for the Ephesian church, that's what he wanted. Over here, he meant for the Colossian church. And, and, no. He said, the things I teach, I want all the churches to hear, and I want them to all understand, because it's there for a reason. And most of the time, he backs up the reason why he tells it. And yet, we try every way possible to spin it, to contextualize it. It's not wrong to contextualize, but contextualize it wrongly so that we don't want to deal with the brunt of the judgment and how it kind of stings. Because it goes after our heart. He says, he will remind you about all the ways. He goes on, it is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you. The kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife. And you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. We're going to look at this next week. 
But that's some serious judgment. And Paul says, he wants you to do it because he wants that person to repent. And there's no other way. If you keep supporting him, if you keep enabling this, if you don't confront this, they're going to think it's okay and keep doing it. You've got to go after it. Lovingly, caringly. Oh, and by the way, the Gentiles are looking at the church and making fun of the church because they're like, we're more righteous than they are. Why would we believe their God? We actually know their God's laws. We do more like their God's laws than they do. Why do we need their God in their church? It's kind of fake. Paul goes on and says, for though I am absent in the body, but present in the spirit, I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus with my spirit, And with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is not a popular verse today. We just want love everybody and everything's going to be okay. And Paul's like, no, this person is doing something. He will not repent. He believes it's okay. He continues to participate in it. You've got to stand up for what's righteous, not because you want to show off, not because you're prideful and say, we're one of those churches that we don't allow that kind of stuff in our church. He says, no, you do it because that guy needs his flesh destroyed or he might be destroyed in the end forever. And the only way to get his attention is to say, that doesn't happen here You can repent and come right in. You guys can separate and start over and stay in the same church separated. But you can't continue like this. Can I just tell you? Will you be found with that kind of faithfulness? Would you even be willing to say, God, I don't know how you can produce that kind of faithfulness in me, but I surrender to you. I want to see you do it. Because if Paul says it's possible, then I'm going to believe that it's possible because he was listening to you. Can I just tell you? God wants your heart. He wants you to be found faithful. He wants you to know that he is faithful to you. And the way that you do that is to continue to say, God, I'm finding you faithful again today. I'm finding you faithful again today. You'll be the one. I want to go to your word. I want to know your word and I'm going to live by it. And when it turns out that I'm last in the race and it's a mess and it's a disaster and it's like people are scraping me off the bottom of their shoes, doesn't matter because I'm not working for their applause. I'm working for yours and I'm grateful to be found faithful to you. That sounds great preaching it. It's another thing to live it. And I struggle with it just like you guys do, but I can't not tell you what the cross looks like and what Paul says it looks like to be found faithful. Let me ask you, do you have faith this morning? God says he can take a little mustard seed faith and grow it amazingly if you'll just trust it. If you'll just start. Say, God, I surrender. Maybe for those of you who are believers, there are things that you're clinging to. There are things that when you look at this list, you don't want God to know the motives. You don't want other people. You won't come under anyone. It's just you and Jesus. Can I just tell you, God says that's going to lead to a miserable life of just mess after mess. And he says, come under me. Join my people like in Deuteronomy Exodus, or in Leviticus and Zechariah, like Jesus said to do, come under my people, walk together in faithfulness so that the world can see what it means for a church to be found faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. I thank you that Paul wrote this in obedience to you, that he wrote for us to consider our way. So this morning, Lord, with the folks that are here, those that are joining online, I pray that we would consider our ways. Lord, we can't control a lot of the circumstances in our life, but we can control our faithfulness to you, our trust in you through those things. We can control our trust in your people, giving ourselves to your people, even though we're all imperfect, even though we make bad judgments and we struggle, we can still entrust ourselves because you entrusted yourself to all the imperfect authorities so that you could be shown to have all authority. And so, Father, I thank you for that message this morning. And I pray that there's anyone that hasn't found you faithful, they've not surrendered, man, today be the day. And I pray that maybe even they'd say, I want to be baptized. I want to declare to the world next week that I am faithful, I've surrendered. And man, would they be baptized? Just as a declaration of what's already happened inwardly in the motives of their heart. 
For those of us who are believers, I pray that like Paul, if we've been walking faithfully with you and it's been hard and it feels like we're just being scraped off the bottom of people's feet, I pray that we would celebrate that. That we'd celebrate that you have found us faithful to place us through those situations so that we could be a representative and give you the glory to others around us. And so Lord, have your way in us. Find us faithful in your name. Amen.